You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, thanks for coming along today. Before we begin, I would just like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners. We're standing here on Gadigal land, a land belonging to the Eora Nation. And it's upon their ancestral land that we meet today and we, perhaps we can bear that in mind, particularly in some of the themes that I suspect will come out today in relation to impacts of mining legacies on communities. Uh, so my name is Charles. I'm the Executive Director of the Mineral Policy Institute um, and have been for about 10 years now. I'm also a PhD candidate at Murdoch University, um, looking, working with communities on a participant action research project on the impacts of mining before the mine actually exists. Um, so it, it's an interesting and creative place to, to play in. I don't think you could call it a career, but um, it certainly got me out of bed and got me moving for the last 20 years. Okay, and chairing this panel. Um, we've got four great panellists, and trust me, each one could speak for the whole session and in, inform and entertain you with what they know about mining legacies. So we'll try and keep it fairly tight. The format for today is they get five minutes to introduce themselves and, and sort of their, their thoughts, their perspectives. I've given them some, some challenges to start with. And then we move into a 25-minute panel discussion where I'll lead them through some themes that hopefully come out of their initial comments. And then the last 25, 30 minutes, hopefully you'll throw us some curly ones from the floor and challenge them to answer your questions or um, come up with new insights. In preparation for today, I was thinking about what mining legacies are, and I remember, um, so some of us are, are on the board of the Mineral Policy Institute. We've been drawn together by our sort of in the impacts of mining on communities here in Australia and around the world. And a few years ago now, um, Mia, Gavin and myself wrote a, a paper on mining legacies. And because perhaps I'm feeling lazy or perhaps because I thought we got it right at the time, I wanted to refer back to that. Because there's no, as we discovered at the time, there's, there's no real shared agreement about what a mining legacy is. And often it's the, the definitions about what might be an abandoned mine or a derelict mine that help people talk about it in a particular way and therefore omit a whole lot of sites or circumstances that don't fit within that definition. So today I want to use the definition of mining legacies that we prepared in here based on others' work. And basically it includes abandoned, derelict mines, even long-term care and maintenance. Basically it encompasses all mine sites requiring management and rehabilitation. And that is something I suppose is a difference that we have compared to the industry who likes to compartmentalise these and sees perhaps define a mine in care and maintenance even if it's been there for 10 to 20 years, are still under their control and still something happening to it, whereas often we know these sites aren't. There's basically a company just sitting on that lease and not much is happening with that. The other reason, or perhaps something that I'll just start with, with one fact that I like. So this is based on Lawrence's work. He did a lot of work on mining legacies here in Australia. And so based on his work, at looking at a 1,000 sites, between 1981 and 2005, 75% of mines closed either prematurely or in an unplanned way. So when we're thinking about mine closure and proper effective mine closure, 
and sort of its opposite, which is negative mining legacies that continue, what we need to be aware of is that the normal process is for mines not to be closed how they were first planned. So not to be closed properly. So mining legacies, I suggest, is, is the standard. That's what normally happens here with mines in Australia. So rather than thinking about, oh, there's a few sites that need to be addressed and this is a marginal problem, it's actually a cornerstone of the mining industry. And we're not just saying that to blame the mining industry for it. We all benefit from mining, from metals, energies and everything else. But just to acknowledge that there's this cost there and there's, there's this built-in sort of flaw, if you will, that continues to allow mines to be approved without being closed properly, thereby creating mining legacies for the future. But enough from me. Um, we've got four good panellists. So just to introduce them briefly, um, Rebecca at the end, who's the, which reminds me, because I need to thank Rebecca for driving this, but I also need to thank the um, Environment Institute, particularly the Executive Director, Michelle St. Anne, and the people that are organising it today, Eloise, Charlotte, Naomi and Liberty, that have helped make this, make this a reality. We've all come from different places today and without the Sydney Environment Institute, then, then just, this just wouldn't be happening. But Rebecca was, was really instrumental in getting this off. So Rebecca's um, one of the co-authors, along with Dave Sweeney, of Unfinished Business, Rehabilitating the Uranium, Ranger Uranium Mine. Um, and I'm sure that will come out um, within the session today. And quite interestingly, another one that I didn't know about until I found it today was a recent paper with Kieran O'Farkale on mine closure and the Aboriginal estate. And obviously, a lot of mining occurs on the Aboriginal estate in Australia, and it's a significant issue that often, I think, is, is not properly acknowledged. Gavin's a bit of a legend in terms of his ability to crunch numbers around the impacts of mining. For those of you who aren't aware, Gavin's... Um, highly cited internationally in relation to the trends that the mining industry is going through. So when anyone wants to talk about declining ore grades in internationally, then basically you'll find a reference at the bottom there to Gavin Mudd. So we're really uh, lucky to have him along today. And I'll pay him great respect to say that he is what I think of as a, like a traditional academic activist. Um, we used to have a lot more of them in universities, but I think it's a little bit of a lost art with um, money coming from industry sources a lot. And he has an enormous body of research. Um, I suggest you start with um, Google. Me is an amazing grassroots activist. Um, known her for maybe 10 years now and amazing on-ground work, particularly with remote and indigenous communities. Um, but I mentioned that as an aside, today she's also here having just completed or completing a master's into mine rehabilitation um, and has some great insights to share. And that, at the moment, is called care and maintenance, a loop, a hole or a lifeline, but um, it could change. And lastly, Dave Sweeney, who I swear looks pretty much the same as when I met him a long time ago. Dave's also very much a legend, particularly in the Australian mining nuclear, um, having spent close on 30 years, I think, without giving away his age. Um, working on the impacts of the nuclear industry. And his work is not only well-respected here in Australia, but also overseas. So 
that's the panel. And now I'll sit down and ask them to speak. Thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Rebecca. Uh, I have lived the majority of my adult life in Sweden, uh, working with Indigenous army reindeer herding communities and uh, assisting them, working for Sami organisations but to protect their traditional lands from competing land uses and competing land uses may include forestry, wind power, mining, tourist resorts and the like. Um, and just to share my perspective of mining leg legacies, um, I just want to tell a very short story. Uh, in 2007, I went up to the north of Sweden and I was going to be assisting a, a Sami community who were negotiating the mining company around the reopening of an old mine. That mine had been closed in the 1970s and at the time uh, the Swedish Prime Minister had travelled up to the north of Sweden, Sweden promising uh, regional jobs for the area. It's a familiar story even to Australia today. Now, when I went to this community and I was very earnest and goal-oriented and I was ready there with my pen and paper, they didn't want to talk about the new mine. They wanted to talk about the old mine. And they wanted to talk about the traumas associated with the old mine. And I knew nothing. I actually didn't know that there had been a mine there. And when I asked them, how long ago did this mine close? I expected them to say, oh, you know, last year. 40 years it had been closed. But the trauma and the memories associated of being ridden, you know, kind of being disrespected, their consent was not sought, uh, their traditional lands had been degraded. It was like it had happened yesterday for them. So while that mine may be technically closed, they had no closure. And I think when we think about mine closure and mine rehabilitation, we need to think about not only rehabilitating the environment, but how we remediate and rehabilitate relationships. And that's particularly pertinent for Indigenous people who feel that relationships between themselves and their country, relationships between themselves and the majority of society have been disrupted. So that's, that's my take on mine site rehabilitation and mine legacies, that there are social and cultural elements that need to be grappled with and that aren't grappled with because for the most part rehabilitation is dealt with by mining engineers. Thank you. Thanks, Rebecca. My name is um, is Dave Sweeney. I'd also like to acknowledge the, the traditional owners of the country that we're talking on here today. Um, I work and lead the Nuclear Free Campaign of the Australian Conservation Foundation. Um, and uh, the experience that I have with the mining industry over many years now is uh, predominantly... A, focused in detail about the uranium sector, but not exclusively. There's lots of applicability across a range of other parts of, um, of the mining industry. Um, I suppose I've been around, just for some context, I've been around resource, the interface of resource, extractive and Indigenous issues for you know, three decades thereabouts and through different lenses, mostly through the environmental and environmental advocacy lens, but also as a resource journalist and also as a... Um, as a labour rights or, you know, working with trade unions. So there's different perspectives to that uh, viewpoint and what's, what's formed. And over those years, I was reflecting on it ahead of today, and there's lots that's changed, but there's quite a deal that has not. The basic business model of rip, ship, underperform, apologise and repeat continues. And it's, you know, the enlightened company that apologises. Um, We've got 50,000 legacy mines in Australia. You could clean up 1,000 a week 
and have two weeks off. 50,000 legacy mines. Now, a lot of those are old and inherited and they can't be put down to any mining, modern mining regime and would be unfair to, you know, make too much of that. But a lot of them aren't. A lot of them aren't. And their existence is testament to a continuing culture where the finding, the identifying, the extracting, the exporting of the mineral is the very clear focus of the sector. The front end of the mining sector is the end that has the excitement, the buzz, the promise of jobs and dollars, the new fresh start, the politician thinking of a photo opportunity. We have real body of work to do to change the discourse and to change the thinking into whole-of-life thinking. That's why it's such an important national environment group issue. Like, it's a national environmental issue and that's why a group like ACF is involved. Now, there's still... Not, not all industry has that rip-ship, underperform, apologise, repeat model, but still too many do. And still too many have a, a model or a cultural block which is a real problem when it comes to rehabilitation, discourse and practice. And that is a complete desire to avoid sterilising the resource. That's the language. It's not cleaning up the mess. It is sterilising the resource. Commodity prices might change. Technology might change. Abilities to extract, refine, etc., etc. Margins might change. So let's not lock the door on this. And that sort of thinking is very different from the thinking of saying... There was a mine here, now there's not, now we need to remediate. And there's a profound disjunct there which holds back meaningful work. Um, most recently, I've been really pleased to be here today but also to have an engagement like ACF to have a uh, collaboration with the Sydney Environment Institute and to work with Rebecca and the Institute on a, a project tracking the Ranger mine and looking at the mine closure plan that's been outlined by Mining Company Energy Resources Australia and seeing how is this? Is it fit for purpose? What's it look like from an independent sort of, you know, non-financially involved perspective? Um, and we found clear deficiencies. The trajectory that was often positive, but clear uh, deficiencies in detail. And as we all know, the devil literally is. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a need, again... For, and that's one of the key things from my perspective in civil society stuff too, for civil society groups, public health groups, labour groups, trade unions, environment groups, Indigenous traditional owners particularly. They're not strictly civil society, they're landowners and traditional owners. But to work together to ensure that the system is improved, that companies are held accountable, that politicians see on the photo opportunities and that regulators are given the capacity and the courage and the capabilities to deliver on community expectation. I think most people will be shocked at how poorly things have done and I think part of the best thing we can do is shine a light and change the discourse. I'm going to put one slide up um, and this I think highlights the, the situation we face in Australia. So I just wanted to put it up there to, to highlight just how few minds in Australia are closed or closing in comparison to the number of mines that are abandoned, operating or in care and maintenance. Um, part of, I can't really put this slide up without talking about just how hard it is to 
quantify what the problem is. So this is done by the Australia Institute. It's from a report called Dark Side of the Boom. And they went through great lengths to try and establish how many mines are in each of these categories. And you can see by the low end and the high end values that, you know, that it's really almost impossible to say. I think they asked Charles and Charles can't do that. It's, it's an impossible thing to, to do. Um, but what it really does highlight in any case is just how few mines are closed. And to talk about why that, that is a problem, I mean, the point that Rebecca and Dave have made is that there's a lived experience in this country of people that have been let down by the mining industry. And that's manifested in, you know, lots of community resistance to new mines. Um, and the industry's responded and they've said, OK, we need better mine rehabilitation. Um, guidelines and we've got a, you know, a fantastic set of, of guidelines. We've got commitments from governments and we've got fantastic new regulations. But at the end of the day, they're not working because we've got figures like this. Um, and so when you look at what are the real barriers to closing mines, it is what Dave said. It's, it's this idea and this concept that exists in industry and is adopted by regulators that we can't sterilise resources, that there's this huge opportunity cost. If we actually close these mines and the value of these resources change, we might not be able to mine it in the future. And at the end of the day, that is so entrenched in the view among regulators, and I'm, I'm speaking from part of the research that I've been doing in interviewing regulators and industry, it was so apparent that that, that was the sticking point for actually using any of the policy tools that they have to implement, to force compliance with their regulation because, they're, I mean, regulators are actually uh, nervous and, and I think they're right to be nervous that if they actually do enforce... And that's really the threat. And that was, that was, that's been so clearly put to me in a number of interviews with, actual, with people from the industry and saying, actually, yeah, when it, when, you come, when it comes down to care and maintenance, and I think, yeah, this is... The research that I've been doing but wanted to just um, add to what Charles said about care and maintenance is that it's completely legitimate to put a mine in care and maintenance because we're responding to market changes. Um, but actually, when you look at the regulations across all the states and territories, there's only one state that's actually defined what care and maintenance is, and that's Western Australia. The Northern Territory have guidelines to develop care and maintenance plans, but they don't define what it is. And so in... In the fact that they don't define it, they don't define what outcome there should be for those mines. But the shared understanding among regulators is that there's an expectation that those mines will reopen. But then you ask those regulators, do you think they will? And they say, depends on the company. And there's, there's this, um, you know, it's pretty clear that if you're a small company, if you're a tier three company or a mid-tier company, the prospects of you opening that are really low. The prospects of you selling it are really high, but who are you going to sell it to? Who's actually going to buy a resource that's not profitable? They might buy it in 10 years, they might buy it in 20 years or 30 years, but at that point, how degraded is the infrastructure? Is it possible to reopen that mine? How much pollution has occurred? What's the cost to the community who's hosting it? There's a whole suite and range of questions and issues around care and maintenance that aren't addressed in policy. Um, because it's not even defined. And I think at the point that we're at now, that's one of the first things that we need to address if we are actually to see real change in quota. The other, there are a few other things that really need to change to get outcomes with closure. That is challenging the idea of exploration and expansion. At the front end of mines, 
you come in and you have a life of mine plan. This is where we're going to start. We're going to mine and then we're going to close. The reality is they're exploring the entire time that they're mining with the view to expand. And they don't talk about that at the front end when they're getting... That's a real issue. That needs to change. Um, and there also needs to be... And this has come out through the Queensland Auditor General. So the Queensland Auditor General and the New South Wales Auditor General both identified care and maintenance as a huge issue. And within that... Um, They've also identified that the ch change in controlling ownership of companies and through our Corporations Act, which happens nationally, our state governments don't always have the ability to intervene if you've got a big company selling a mine that they've taken the best resource out of, selling to a small company that doesn't have the capacity to close it. And that's what happens pretty regularly. Um, and so the Queensland government's looking at um, establishing change of, um, change of control assessments so that they can intervene and say, actually, you can't sell it to that company. They don't have the, they don't have the technical or financial capacity to meet their conditions or close. Um, so there, there are a couple of things that, that are really, um, that are very clear as, as barriers to closure that, um, that I think, yeah, I'd like to talk about. G'day. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I think um, I'd like to start, I guess, ex explaining the journey of where I came from and why I, I've, I've been doing a lot of the work I do. Because, um, you know, I started working, you know, with um, different environment groups back in the 90s and, and hearing the stories. Like, Rum Jungle was rehabbed in the 1980s and it's a disaster. It just hasn't worked. And you look at other sites, well, we know the rehab hasn't worked. And yet, maybe there's some sites, like Captain's Flat in Canberra or near Canberra, um, has been reasonable. Right. It's still less at mine drainage, but it's reasonable. And so, um, but from the late 90s, of course, we started seeing the mining industry you know, pivoting and, and starting to change and say, well, yeah, we are reporting annually on our environmental performance. And that was uh, companies like Western Mining Corporation or WMC. Um, you had Alcoa doing it and so on. And so there was this real push to start to uh, push an image of the industry is that they were being environmentally responsible. Post-Johannesburg, of course, the, uh, you know, the, the Earth Summit there in 2002, the global industry started changing the language to sustainable mining. Some people still think that's a bit of a, an oxymoron, um, and so the language has gone to responsible mining. And so, uh, you know, just at the same time, I'd started my, um, I suppose, longer-term academic career at Monash Uni. I was approached by Tasha Beaumont, who used to be involved with MPI back many years ago for, um, as research director, and saying, well, how do we respond? You know, if we're talking to communities where companies are saying they're operating responsibly, they're they're meeting environmental requirements and, and all of this. And I said, well, um, when you look at all of the, the global industry, the global mining industry that put the work into um, Johannesburg where they had this big, massive report called Mining Minerals and Sustainable Development, or MMSD, and it was basically ignoring the issues. It was not dealing with legacies. Sure, it acknowledged that mining pollution can occur, that communities can be impacted, and, um, yeah, and then sometimes there's debates about the, you know, the financial benefits or the jobs and things like that. But um, the one thing that they weren't dealing with is the fact that we're not dealing with a local mine that's 50,000 tonnes of ore. We're dealing with a mine that does that on a, um, on a daily basis now instead of per year. And so you're dealing with mines that are moving sometimes now, even in Australia, you've got mines in the Pilbara or the coal industry that are moving a few hundred million tonnes a year. But that's both Mount Lyle and Mount Morgan um, combined in one year. And they both took a century to get to their scale. Right? And so a lot of the work I, I started thinking about was like, well, how do we link all of that together? How do we actually start to explain uh, and quantify 
responsibility or sustainability or, or things like that. Um, because ultimately, when you're looking at aluminium or copper, um, why do we go to mining? Well, mining's cheap but environmentally costly. Environmentally, we would prefer to go with recycled aluminium because it's environmentally cheap but financially costly. All right? And so how do you get that equivalence? How do you make sure that we're actually having a proper debate based on real numbers? And so we have that proper understanding. And we're saying, well, yeah, how do we pay for that proper environmental cost? And most of that environmental cost of mining is that mining legacy. And so a lot of the, I, I guess, the, the logic that I started with, um, and I think I, I didn't have any idea of just how much historical data is out there, but when you start putting that picture together of you know, how much ore we used to process to get gold, how much we used to process to get copper, um, and we're producing you know, vastly more gold now, vastly more copper, iron ore, all of these things. And so what we're seeing is that the, the legacy problem is growing exponentially because our grades are declining always, and I, I still find it stunning that some people don't believe that. Um, but they are, fundamentally they are. And it's arguably a function of technology, um, geology, and um, you know, demand in the market. But that environmental footprint is going up. That legacy is getting bigger exponentially. And it's getting exponentially uh, bigger um, than just the rate of production. Right, so the, the size of that environmental problem is growing faster than just the amount of copper we use or the amount of iron ore we mine or things like that. And I think that's the problem. That's what we really need to hit head on. And so a lot of the data sets I've been building over the years is leading towards, well, how do we start to quantify this? Not just within Australia, but also globally. Because the communities that sort of I've engaged with, uh, that's where they start from. They're left with these legacies. The communities in the southern coal fields here dealing with rivers that are cracked and, uh, and have poor water quality from acid mine drainage. The communities in Queenstown or elsewhere, that, um, or you know, Watsonville that Charles and I visited many years ago, um, they can't even trust their local creek and they've got no water for eight months of the year. All right, so how do communities deal with this? Well, they understand these legacies. And so a lot of the community movements that have started have started because they actually understood those legacies much better than I think a lot of us always have. Right? And whether it's Lock the Gate, whether it's um, you know, other groups around the place, but I think that knowledge base was always there. And I think now we're starting to synthesize it a lot better to understand that, yeah, we need to be doing a lot better. We don't monitor much after we do rehab. We rarely ever report the success of rehab, um, let alone the fact that we have a public consultation process about how we decide what is successful rehab. And so we're seeing that in Victoria now, where we've got some of our big coal mines um, you know, closing. And, so, and yet we didn't even have a rehab plan in place. And so I think that they're some of the big challenges. And so we've rehabbed some smaller mines, but we haven't rehabbed any of these big, large-scale mines that are still getting bigger. And I think that's one of the key questions, because when you go to these small sites, you know, in Australia and around the world, um, we know it doesn't always work. And yet some of those legacies are pretty small, and yet we're making even bigger legacies now. And I think that's the open question that uh, I think we really need to hit on, hit, hit head on and, uh, and work out how to deal with, whether it's uh, changing the, the bonding system uh, or some other approaches. But that's the discussion I think we need to be having. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much. As I... Thought. There was way too much to try and fit into one session today. But I want to start with a point that I was intrigued by, and that is um, thinking about Ranger and it being the most uh, regulated mine in the world. I'm always wary of claims like that, so I checked it with Gavin, and he tells me it's probably true. So let's just say it's one of the most regulated mines in the world. So when you start thinking about mine closure, um, and Dave, um, you mentioned there's some good things and there's some inadequacies. So I wondered, wary that this could take all day, but succinctly, if you could, uh, yourself and Rebecca, 
um, perhaps identify some of the good things that have come out of that mine closure plan and then maybe a couple of the things that are, are lacking. But then crucially, what does that mean then for other sites that have less regulatory oversight and perhaps don't have a Rio Tinto that's willing to stump up the $800 million to clean it up? Yeah, they're very good questions. Um, I have been close to the ranger operation in Kakadu um, for a long time and I've heard repeatedly that it's the most regulated mine in the world, which just makes me think that um, it must be a complete and utter shambles and nightmare everywhere else because the information base, the, the um, issue shoving and responsibility shoving between what's quite a complex set of jurisdictions, um, the use of um, commercial incompetence and confidentiality provisions and internal stakeholder circuits rather than any uh, clear uh, publication of a whole range of, you know, pretty reasonable public information just is extraordinary. The lack of union uh, input and coverage, um, a whole range of um, uh, revolving door between federal, state, uh, federal and territory regulators, um, complacency, complicity, complicity. It's just been quite extraordinary. Um, and it really doesn't stack up as the best. Uh, some of its expectations are probably the best. The expectation that it clear up to a very high standard. Ranger in its environmental requirements that are attached to the Ranger Operating Authority is required to rehabilitate the site to a standard where it could be suitable for inclusion in the surrounding dual listed for cultural and natural values World Heritage National Park. That's a very high standard. One of the requirements, not a, a guidance, a requirement from the company is to isolate radioactive tailings from the surrounding environment for a period of not less than 10,000 years. So that sort of figures are ambitious and I welcome their ambition. We're not sure how deliverable they are, but they're the sort of things that make Ranger go, well, we're the best monitored rather than their actual performance. I'll touch on some of the, quickly on some of the deficiencies of the mine closure plan and um, uh, but maybe pass then to Rebecca for some of the others and some of the broader arc of it. Um, we did this report. So it took 18 months of pushing from civil society groups to get Energy Resources of Australia, 68% owned by Rio Tinto, to release this and make this public. It was delay after delay. So what it was is that they published a very extensive, at least thick, um, mine closure plan, which we then analysed and basically gave a top-line response to. And I suppose one of the key things was that the general arc was pretty positive and it was positive because of what Charles said. Rio Tinto have deep pockets and high reputational exposure. And those two things are, are a factor that gives us the better chance of a good rehabilitation outcome in Kakadu. Deep pockets and reputational risk. Um, the, um, the deficiency, so the broad arc was generally good, but the deficiencies were to the detail. Contamination and water monitoring, contamination loads and movement, um, climate change and the impact of climate change. Uh, revegetation and the likelihood of success. But above all, the provision of financial mechanisms 
for post-closure monitoring and response. The, the lack of detail on that fundamental thing when you know you have a legal obligation for a 10,000-year quarantine, the lack of detail on how you will monitor and how you would respond is staggering. Thanks, Dave. Um, I think what struck me with um, when we were doing the Ranger stuff uh, was the complete absence of any attention to social impact. If anyone knows anything about the Ranger project, it was the source of enormous contention, which uh, documented a lot of social baseline data. In the 1980s, there was the social impacts of uranium mining project group. Uh, they had a staff of about 10 or 12, collected a lot of data. Again, in the 1990s, there was something known as the Kakadu Social Impact Study. So that's three bodies across the three decades, 70s, 80s and 90s, of social data that was collected. No mention whatsoever of this data in the mine closure plan. No social impact assessment being done around mine closure, apart from the scenario in which the whole town is bulldozed. So no, no assessment whatsoever of the social impacts of ERA and Rio Tinto withdrawing. And what happens to that town? What happens to education services for Aboriginal people? How has their health been impacted over the last 40 years of uranium mining in that region? So I think that absence for me was, was the most striking. Uh, a, a lot of um, a lot of words in the mine closure plan, but even for me as a non-technical person, I was like, yeah. And how the hell do you actually make sure that those contaminants uh, don't uh, transport themselves in a monsoonal environment over the next ten thousand years? And you don't have any money to monitor that, and you don't have any money to uh, remediate if uh, any works are required. Thanks. I'm aware that Gavin has been working on that site for a long time as well. Um, so, but perhaps not on that site, Gavin. Um, but what does that mean for other sites in Australia? So we might think that radioactivity is a particular problem to uranium mining, but what about if we were to, to cast our eye onto acid mine drainage? How, would, how does that compare in terms of the management of mining legacies? I think one of the biggest legacies of, um, of mines is actually acid mine drainage. I mean, if you, um, for people who speak Spanish, of course, Rio Tinto basically means tainted river, red river, purple river. You can translate it in a few ways. But the uh, Tinto region of Spain was an ancient area of Roman mining, and 500 years, 1,000 years later, it was still causing pollution, and to this day, still does. All right? And so uh, one of the, the, the big problems, I think, if you look at the old Mary Kathleen uranium mine in Queensland, it was rehabilitated, and it was actually... Um, apparently, I think, as, as I believe, the only mining lease in Queensland that's ever because of successful rehabilitation. Now, come back 15 years later, uh, there's acid mine drainage, there's uh, uptake of metals and radionuclides, vegetation above the tailings dam, uh, through the covers, uh, and there's a much greater seepage, there's a much greater flow of water through that rehabilitated structure than there was ever supposed to be. And so what was considered to be a, a top-notch effort back in the 1980s hasn't, standard, hasn't stood the test of time. And so I think that's one of the concerns that we need to think about is that um, what happens if things go wrong? And we know that problems like acid mine drainage may not uh, rear their heads sometimes for 10 or 25 years or more. Uh, so we need to come up with ways to uh, um, fund that and make sure that we uh, have that into the, into the regulatory plan so that we've got money aside to, to help deal with these things into the future because it's going to be a big growing problem.
I'll give you an impossible question. How much money do we need for perpetual management of AMD? Um, you said it was impossible, and I, I would say it is absolutely impossible. Like the, there are mines, or proposed mines in Canada that have um, perpetual management uh, costs for water treatment of uh, you know 100 to you know, depending on the numbers, now 250 million dollars per year, you know 30 years after the mines closed. Um, it, beg, it just beggars belief that some of these projects can get approved, that, that that's going to be the cost. We're not talking perpetual for 50 years. We're talking perpetual for thousands of years. It's so, uh, and okay, some of those contexts might be specific to Canada, but um, we know Mount Lyle still pollutes. We know Mount Morgan still pollutes, and I could name many other sites. So um, we need to work out a way to quantify that and fix it. Thanks. I'm really aware through the work that you know, I've done, and particularly my focus in, in Papua New Guinea, about the different cultural understandings of mining. Um, for example, I'm working with a community at the moment who has a fundamentally different understanding of what the word resettlement means for their future than what the mining company does. Uh, I'm aware that, particularly when we talk about closure, it's a very uh, technical, if not technocratic, formal scientific language. I wanted to open up a question and um, perhaps start with you, Mia. What, what do you think the regulatory system and we will talk more about the regulatory system later, but how does it line up when, when we're talking about communities that have a fundamentally different way of seeing the world and engaging with the environments that these mines and mining legacies occur on? So that question, um, the communities that I've worked with around mine proposals have, have all been at the front end, so it's all been about mine proposals where they've, you've got a public environment review and I, I have not seen any real attempts in the communities that I've worked with of companies or government requiring companies to actually engage with communities on those technical aspects of closure. It's all big picture. It's all about community development and this um, transactional thing of what we'll give you if you say yes, but in terms of the detail of, of saying, okay, this means we're gonna divert this river this way or we're going to, they'll, you know, at the end of the mine there'll be a pit that will um, be radioactive for 10 years and then it will be a permanent lake um, 50 metres from this waterhole. You know, like those kinds of conversations didn't happen in my experience with the, the mines that I was working on in Western Australia with communities. So. That's okay. This, what about you, Rebecca? This was sort of sponsored by your... I hadn't heard you talk about trauma before and I thought that, you know, we can look at... Um, like her colleague at Murdoch, Leon, look, looked at mining through the lens of, of conflict and violence and I thought that thinking about mining legacies through trauma and how that's experienced with different communities was a really interesting insight that you shared before. So can you try and pull that in? I mean, I'm, I'm referencing in part some work by Arne Keeling and Caitlin Beckett out of Canada. They had a project called Toxic Legacies where they worked with um, Indigenous communities around mine site rehabilitation. Um, I don't know how much more I can say. I mean, they really talk about mine closure as the need to... I mean, I think I said that earlier on. And I think when I see the stuff that's happening up at Ranger and knowing the historical conflicts around that mine and most mines, and you see a mine closure document and a mine closure process that gives no recognition of that historical conflict, no acknowledgement of it, 
you know, and people are still living with that trauma of that mine originally opening. And not to acknowledge that and process that, I think, is a deep injustice to local communities. Uh, and if we know anything about trauma, ignoring it does not make it better. In fact, a mine closure process may re-traumatise communities because it brings up old things. But it can also bring up very ambivalent feelings that communities have about mine closure. It might also mean the cessation of royalty streams, of local employment. But people can often be very ambivalent about that because it's also meant the desecration of their sacred sites. So mine closure is never a simple process for locally impacted communities. And I think that is not dealt with in formal mine closure processes. Just make a, a specific observation. That they're really thoughtful points. A specific observation about the um, the cultural lens of how do you want the country to look and how do you want to interact with the country um, has featured, but it's featured by the Mirar people and their organisation, Gunjaitli Aboriginal Corporation. So they had a series in around you know a decade ago of this is happening. So they were on the front foot and saying, this is happening, how do we want it to look? And they had a whole series of extensive consultations and they came up with, we want it to look like small rocks, no bigger than golf balls. We want there to be no open water bodies because spirit might land there and could go wrong. And there was a whole set of things, broad points. And it just being right on the fringes of that made me think how much more inclusive and sensible and respectful and everything this whole process can be. I also think it's interesting the, the different lenses that we bring to things because there is a point in Australian law that says you've got to isolate the radioactive in a wet tropical zone for a period of not less than 10,000 years. And the responses to that are really interesting because a lot of, I suppose, people who ha um, uh, uh, have a response that's like, yeah, right, as if. Another group of people have a response about... Yeah, right, Who who's going to hold the company accountable? So they're sort of the same. One is saying, as if anyone's going to do that, and the other saying, how could you possibly do it? And then there's another lens, which is a little bit sort of the regulatory lens, which is that you say that that is the expectation in the current framework, but there's a sort of wink underneath it all. And then there's the Aboriginal response, which is, yeah, because they've been there 65,000 years. That's carbon dated to our world. On the Mirar Estate is the oldest occupied site in Australia. Stuffs the stone axes and shavings and carvings are at the National Museum in Canberra. 65, 67 and a half thousand years, article in Nature magazine. So that's our lens, verified. But for their lens, it's been forever. So you say 10,000 years, yeah, you do that because we've known this forever. So now it's time for you to step up. So that sense of thinking long is a, is a different thing. And if we could find a way to weave that, you know, rather than our short-term rush to have a photo opportunity and then our short-term rush to run off and leave behind our responsibilities, if we could find some ways to feed that long thinking into our short-term cycles, we'd be better for it. Thanks. So... Mindful that mining legacies are often created by the decision-making processes in mine design, basically, and construction approval processes. I want to start with you, Mia. Um, what are some of the, you know, we could, again, we could talk about this one all day, but what are some of the upfront changes 
that could be made to regulatory systems. Like right now, stuff that might have been considered low-hanging fruit even 15 years ago, what should we have done or what should we be doing right now on the regulatory side that would help with, you know, in, instead of leaving negative legacies for our children or other people's children, to leave positive legacies for the future? There's, there's some... A lot of people are talking now about progressive rehabilitation instead of leaving it all to the end of the mine. So when certain aspects of the mine is finished with a lot of their works, they can start to rehabilitate that. And um, there's not many good things that have come out of the West Australian Mining Rehabilitation Fund, but which is a new regulation for mine closure. But one of the things that has been positive in that is that um, there's a 1% levy that companies have to pay annually and so that is, has given a financial incentive to a lot of progressive rehabilitation um, talk and expectations, but actually delivering it um, is another thing and incentivising the delivery of it, I think, is, is crucial to success. So um, progressive rehabilitation is probably like the most important in terms of over the life of the mind building in um, your closure planning. Um, Developing care and maintenance plans is another one that's kind of emerged in some of the thinking around um, care and maintenance that um, forcing companies to think about what are we going to do if things go bad is, is, um, is also important. Bonds are perhaps the single best permanent incentive because it's a financial incentive but it's also that reputational incentive that, that Dave talked about with Ranger that... Um, and one of the people that I interviewed gave me an example where a company spent $2 million to recover a $25,000 bond because of the reputational risk. So companies can do a lot better, um, and, and they do when there is a risk. And so I think bonds are the single best thing, and the bond systems that we have around the country um, don't accurately represent the cost. Um, and in a lot of cases where there are 100% bonds, um, they're still not working, but there are still a lot of states where they don't have a requirement for a 100% bond, but they need to be regularly reviewed and adjusted to reflect the cost because the costs change over time. And so when things start to go bad for a mine, so once a mine's already in care and maintenance, economically struggling, um, trying to increase their bond at that point is, is going to be the thing that might tip them over the edge and put them into... So... Um, there needs to be that real regular updating of the bonds so that they're, they're reflective of the true costs. Um, and in Western Australia, they need to put back a bond system because they took it away when they introduced the levy. Um, and that's, that's just frightful when you look at the mines in WA and the costs and you think about what, that, what our state government has to fix those sites up. But that, that would be my kind of top three. Yeah, very quickly, I think... Um heartily agree with what Mia said, but I think we also uh, need to think who's assessing the bond numbers and actually um, how that's actually done, because part of the problem we have that bonds are still an underestimate is that that is almost entirely done just between the company uh, and the regulator, and so there's no independence there in actually true assessment. We know from many mines that the true cost of rehab uh, is almost always greater than the actual bond number, even if that bond was 100%. And so I think we need to get a much better um, assessment of what that actual... Um, you know, the true cost of rehabilitation is, and we need to factor in um, some sort of system, whether it's a levy system or something else as well, that we actually pay for this long-term uh, monitoring 
uh, an assessment so that we can get to a point where it's five years, 10 years, or 25 years, or 10,000 years in, in the case of Ranger, uh, where we can then say, yes, rehabilitation has been successful, and here's the community expectations that um, this was the promise that was made, and this has been the delivery. And I think, um, so the bond deals with doing the work, it doesn't monitor the work. And I think that that's one of the other things that we need to work out how to, um, how to uh, our budget for as well. Thank you. Uh, okay, so we're almost into the... But just before I let, uh, we begin that, I just wanted to ask if anyone on the panel had a, um, a positive story from engagement with the community. You know, mining legacies happen to people. Um, they happen to people on country, whether they're Indigenous people or not. Um, has anyone, had anyone got a story they can share about the way a community has been able to respond to a, a mining proposal or, or a mining legacy? There's, lo I mean, there's lots of positive stories about how communities are um, taking some form of power in community action to, um, to unite and demand better outcomes. But, um, but yeah, but what, all the projects I've been involved in have been at the front end. So, um, but community resistance has definitely been really important in getting better outcomes, like better requirements and conditions on, on mine closure. That's, that's definitely... Good. Um, in the Kakadu context, the best one I've seen um, was the ultimate preventative with um, Geoffrey Lee, senior traditional owner of the Jock people nearby to um, Ranger, looked at that experience and said, I don't want this at my country at Kungara, and just consistently said no and was able through a combination of resistance and circumstance and politics and market forces and a whole sweet alignment to get this uh, mining project put into Kakadu. <laughs> That's not rehabilitation, it's preservation, um, based on seeing uh, the impact. I would like to think that we can make the Ranger model a model that actually does this. There's, got, there's, there's pieces in play here of a, a community with agency, a community that has never, never relinquished um, control, that has cohesion, that has put itself in the driving seat of the social relocation. Just recently there was a $250 million compact arranged between the Federal Government, the Northern Territory Government, Energy Resources of Australia and Gunjaitney Aboriginal Corporation to transition the region to a post-mining future. Now that language was used by Susan Lay to transition to a post-mining future. Three, four years ago, the company was saying, we're going for underground mining. Five years ago, we're going for underground mining. Three years ago, we're bulldozing the town. Now it's all about tourism, culture, arts and post-mining. I'd like to think that collectively, civil society can support the positive side of that trajectory, Charles. I might be stealing your point here, Gavin. But, um, I mean, I think part of the reason we don't have too many good stories about community participation when it comes to mine closure is because it's not actually required by regulation. And when Kieran O'Fairclay and I looked through mining agreements between Indigenous communities and mining companies by regulation, very few of them had any clause around Indigenous participation in mine closure. So I think if we had a transparent public participation process around the assessment of mine closure, the same way we do for the planning of new mines, we might actually see better outcomes. 
just very quickly, I think the, the, the Rum Jungle site, you know, and I, I feel like the old Star Trek line, everything I learned from Jungle, but um, as much as they did rehabilitation in the 1980s um, and it's failed, um, the work that's been done over the last decade with a lot of community consultation um, to actually say, well, what does the community want? What's the best way, you know, both technically um, to do an, another round of rehabilitation to actually meet community objectives there? And there's been a lot of work with the indigenous communities and the environment communities up there. So I think that's something that, um, you know, as much as sometimes I've always, uh, you know, um, you know horns with some of the people in the, in the territory, in the regulatory space, um, no, that one's actually been a really good example, I think, where they've actually uh, led a very good process. And I think, um, and that's sort of still in play at the moment, and we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But that's certainly a good one. All right, thanks very much. So I'm going to throw over to the, for you, to you, to the audience today. Uh, the format that I'd sort of like to follow is I'll just arbitrarily pick someone who wants to ask a question. And then we'll see perhaps if we can run that on a little bit of a theme rather than jumping from one point to one point. So if you get out, if, you, if it's your question, great. Otherwise, put your hand back down, perhaps, and then just see where the conversation goes. Does anyone want to throw a curly one at us to start? Just introduce yourself. Um, hi, I'm Pollyanna. I'm from Bullard Grove Valley in Victoria. And um, thank you all so much. Um, so I guess um, I'm here because Morwell is currently under rehabilitation and... Um, we found out about a year ago that the next 50 years of our life will be dealing with three coal holes and potentially filling them full of water. Um, and I currently work with Ray McKay, the mine commissioner, delivering like a community engagement strategy through art. So I'm an artist, not anyone technical and we kind of got the community around the idea of the basic mechanics of mine rehabilitation and why we would be filling our holes full of water for the next 50 years um, and now we're kind of in a fight to actually have the water allocations because they're no longer producing energy um, so at the, the city is competing for our water source as well. M most of the community, myself included, <laughs> just have no idea how we can, you know, we're, we're engaging with the commissioner, we're, we're trying to engage with the mines, we're trying to get our head around the facts as quickly as possible and we know that the decision for our rehabilitation plan is happening like June next year. What 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 do we need to demand what what is critical right now in the next eight months to get the best deal and what I'm looking at for is like some sort of fund or some sort of ongoing something that we can gather and organize and create and have what the next 50 years looks like Sorry about that. Okay. I was just down at Ilorn a couple of weeks ago. So 20 years ago, when the Latrobe Valley was all privatised, um, the SEC had been spending more than a decade on rehab. Um, and it's not as much as we're talking about um, Hazelwood or Morwell, uh, it's not just about Hazelwood and Morwell. You've got Lorne, you've got Loyang, uh, and the communities there. And so uh, 
and it's a huge task. You know, you're talking 1.5 Sydney Harbour's worth just for, for Hazelwood alone. So, um, and again at Yulon probably, and then you know probably bigger at um, what well, will be bigger at, at Loyang. And so, um, so it's a, it's a really big question, and I think part of it is uh, making sure that a lot of the uh, the work is done publicly, right? And I think Ray sort of um, part of the reason um, Victoria put Ray in the position that he um, that he's in is precisely to do that, to make sure there is a public process around how the decisions are made on, on rehabilitation. But it, it's hard. I, I, uh, how do you justify putting you know, tens and tens of gigalitres of water, um, i.e. billions and billions of litres of water, into a pit for, for decades? You know, and that we're going to do that at Hazelwood and then increasingly at your lawn and then again at Loyang. Um, and if they, so which means we need to have really good data around all of those aspects, but also really good community engagement as well. Uh, what, what is the plan that the community wants? You know, uh, I think part of the problem is that when everything was privatised, all the power stations stopped talking to each other. There was no cumulative sort of assessment of actually, well, okay, how do we sequence all of this? How do we time all of that? Um, but also, what are the right outcomes? And what are the, you know, how do we decide what are the right outcomes? And I think that's what, you know, Hazelwood closed before we'd even, even asked that question. And so I think, at least we're doing that now. So I think Victoria's at least uh, made some good reforms, and so um, and hopefully we can continue to improve those into the future. But um, but primarily, one of the great things that I think we, we need to be doing right across Australia is transparency, and we need good monitoring, um, reporting of all of that monitoring publicly, um, so we have that transparency. And uh, I don't think any jurisdiction does that very well yet. We, we're, we're just starting to realise that we we should be doing that for rehabilitation as opposed to just operation. Thanks, Gavin. That was a, that's pretty good. I might just see if we can get a follow-up. You know, uh, someone that, another lady at the back, please. Oh, hello. Um, actually, I was going to mention there's a there was a project um, in Pennsylvania some years ago in a town called Vintondale. It was called AMD and Art, um, Acid Mine Drainage and Art, and the project involved um, bringing together all the community of this particular town that, um, of course, the rehabilitation wasn't just about um, cleaning up the acid mine drainage, it was also about helping the town because a lot of the jobs left when the mining company closed and, and so it was, it was nearly going to become a ghost town. Anyway, it was, if you look it up, AMD and Art, it's uh, in Pennsylvania, I don't know if you were aware of this, um, it, it was a, quite successful. But of course, in the United States, they're able to get money through, um, you know, through entrepreneurs who they can, uh, you know, ask for funding for these things. And I think this is one of the things that uh, we lack in Australia, where you know, we, we people are often relying on government to supply this money. And of course, um, and the state government of New South Wales, for example, they, they don't have a lot of money to rehabilitate um, mines. So. Obviously, alternative uh, processes need to occur, and that's where I think actually um, Pollyanna's question was kind of an interesting one. But there are examples of this occurring successfully overseas, and that's what we need to be looking towards, in my opinion. I might just respond to that one, take that chair's prerogative. So, as the executive director of the Mineral Policy Institute, one of my jobs is to try and bring money in to raise questions, tough questions about the mining industry and to help communities. And that is almost impossible in Australia because not only is our economy dominated by the mining industry, so is our politics and so is our social life almost. You know, we're, 
if you think about what a mining town looks like, then Australia is in some ways just a big one. So certainly Western Australia is. In terms of our, some of our thinking about um, rather than having a, having a binary pro or anti-mining sort of discussion, but to be able to have a discussion where mining is required for modern existence at the moment, but it comes with a whole lot of negative impacts and how might we address those. In other countries, there's a lot more money that's available to ask those questions. I would say that there is enough money here in Australia, but it's not allocated. Like we do very well out of mining, as we all know. The budget might be balanced now because of increases in commodity prices. But we get a very small return to the public, a direct return. I don't see any reason why there couldn't be a greater proportion that comes not only to the regulation side of it, but to continual research and development and um, reaching out to communities about what those impacts are. Just a quick point, I think, as well, is that um, when we made me thinking about Pennsylvania, it's um, a lot of the monitoring and the sort of the, the um, reporting of things and that, that assessment has to include the social side, not just the environmental. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, it comes back to sort of Rebecca's point. A lot of these things have just been left in the past. And so these traumas or these sort of problems or legacies um, are left undealt with. And so I think if we, the part of the way that we can say, well, how do we demonstrate a better mining industry into the future? Well, I'm a data junkie. I'll always say we need more data. Um, but we need to understand what we're monitoring, what for. Um, but who decides when we look at the data, who decides, well, what's successful and what isn't? Um, and at the moment, uh, the community has virtually no voice in that. And so I think at least with Victoria, there, there is a process where there is a lot of community engagement over the, the future of the Latrobe Valley and what's going to happen down there. Um, and hopefully that sort of um, approach can be rolled out a lot more nationally. So um, anyway, hopefully some good thoughts. Should we perhaps pick up another, another topic or tangent? Oh, it's Don Wright from the Nature Conservation Council. Uh, I was just going to follow the same line, actually, given your prompt there, uh, and talk about bonds. Because my understanding of bonds in New South Wales is that if you're building a coal mine or whatever, you, you are subject to a royalty, and that royalty, part of that royalty goes to uh, mine rehabilitation at the end of life. However, the quantum of that bond is, is not huge, and my understanding is it goes into consolidated revenue. So the government's incentive is to hang on to that rather than to return it. Now, um, is that a, that's a myth? Is that an urban myth, or is that in fact correct? Um, and, uh, and just to, so that's a question really for you guys, but a, a comment about uh, closure at Morwell and other things has caused AGL. I'm aware that AGL are, are closing the Liddell power station. Not only are they closing the power station, but that means that they have got to do something about remediating the ash piles that have come from that power station. So there's a collateral there. And, and, and um, they, they've picked up on the fact that Victoria's not done it particularly well and, and done it in a great hurry. And they, they are, seem to be preparing the way in a, some sort of reasonable fashion for what is going to happen in 2022 and 2023 uh, when they close the deal. So Anyone want to answer a question on New South Wales? I'm aware you're all from elsewhere. Uh, I'll do my best uh, generally. Um, there's different things. One is bond for the actual site itself, uh, and enough, uh, so for mining generally. Um, but for coal mining, there's also things for things like longwall mining and impacts on infrastructure and so on as well. So, so I think um, 
that's probably what the, is going into consolidated revenue, but I, I wouldn't be 100% certain. But um, part of the problem with Victoria is, if, um, is when we've closed uh, Hazelwood, there was a $70 million bond. And the figure, last figure I heard about a year ago was it's going to cost at least $720 million. Now, Engie, I think, deserve credit there. They're hanging around, they're doing the work and, and getting on with it. And so, um, but it's a similar situation with Alcoa down in uh, Anglesey as well. And um, they've done, you, know, you can actually see the evidence in Google Earth whether you actually see the rehabilitation over time. So, um, so despite the fact that the bond was nowhere near good enough, um, at least they're getting on with the job. And so I think there's, um, so we're thankful, I guess, for that. But it's, um, but yeah, some of these things are, are, are complex. And so we need to make sure we, we, we do understand that detail. But. The New South Wales um, Department of Planning have um, the derelict mines program, or it's called something else now. I think it's just there is funding through the government, and I'm not sure where they get it to to do that. And that's to address already abandoned mines. Um, the New South Wales audit report, I think, identified that there's a, a fairly large gap in New South Wales between the bonds and the actual liability of of the mines existing in New South Wales. So I'd, I'd look up that for the figures. I don't have them off the top of my head. Um, that was the 2017 one. Um, but from some of the interviews with regulators around the country, what, what was really clear was that um, even though there are bonds, the governments are, are very reluctant to take on the liability and to actually call on the bonds to close the mine. So there, there's a whole range of other things that government would prefer to do before doing that, like um, encouraging a company to sell to another company who may or may not recommence operations. There's a whole suite of things that they would do. That's really, I think, a very... Absolutely, absolutely, that's, that's one issue. The other issue is, again, this idea of realising resources. Governments are really reluctant to do that and, and also... Um, I mean, in terms of actually doing the closure work, it, it's yeah much more expensive once the machinery is off the site and once the company, all the technical knowledge of that site, is, the engineers and everybody else have gone. So it's, I think it would become... I, I don't know if we would get a very good outcome either if government started to do that work. I don't know if you've got a... Might try and change tack there because I've been waiting for changes in... And I get a little bit sad when we have the same conversations again. Um, because those reforms are still genuinely needed. The, the lack of progress is, is stunning. Does anyone want to take us in a, in a different direction? Yes, please. Hi, everyone. Thanks. Um, I work on mine closure governance primarily in Latin America, and I'm Canadian. And a lot of people in Latin America, especially South America, look to Australia and Canada as the leaders in mine closure regulation. So my question is, how do you respond to those kinds of claims to fame? What kinds of other contexts or other projects might actually constitute good closure globally that Australia and Canada could look to? Yeah, two, two quick responses to that. One is I've had a very similar thing um, where I've been asked and made three or four trips to Africa where fledgling concerns, community concerns around uranium mining and can you come and advise us on regulation because Australia has got the most rigorous mine regulation and it's just an extremely cleft stick in a very difficult situation when you go. But I suppose compared to 
many, the, it's the external. It's not necessarily the regulation. It's the external actors here. A reasonably independent press, free trade unions, civil society, Aboriginal organisations and representative bodies that have some agency and some leverage, etc., etc. They're the piece that ring fence here, in my experience, that make the difference. In relation to good experience of uranium mining in Australia, negative. Um, the one that I can point to and have seen a number of times over a number of decades is one is an area, uh, the Erzberger, the ore mountain on the East German-Czech border. There's been bismuth mining and mining there since the 12th century. And there was uranium mining operations extensively from 1945 to probably 1985. And that whole area was one of those gold coin sales. When the two Germanys united back into one Germany, the whole Wismut operation, multiple sort of HBO-style outfit, um, was sold for one Deutschmark to the German state. And enjoy the trucks and enjoy the rehabilitation liabilities. Massive effort, 8 billion euros, massive geotech, massive work, and they've done a pretty good job. It's not without complications and, and you know, deficiencies, but by and large, it's the one that you point at in the atomic world at least. I think my simple response to that is, um, sure, we're better than what we used to be, but we're still not good enough. And I think you only have to look at communities around the place to sort of get a good sense for that. So um, there's some things we are, we're, we're doing better, um, but I think we've still got a long way to go. I'll add to that also that it's not just the mining industry here. We're really talking about the regulators, and that starts with the politicians. So it's as good as the regulations that are applied on the day. Uh, and there's not always the political will to see these carried out. I think we do have, by international standards, very good regimes in Australia. Does that mean that they're good enough? Then I'd say clearly no. We can still improve those regimes and the way they're applied. But it is it says something about the, the international challenge of mining. And if you think about it from a development justice perspective, then how do we mine the, you know, the global international footprint how do we make sure that we're getting just outcomes for everybody, um, including in those countries that have low governance regimes? With um, open cut uh, coal mines, uh, which uh, cease to uh, operate, often they uh, cover over with uh, soil and uh, so on, and then, um, I don't know, plant whatever uh, vegetation there. But a big problem is that uh, because we have a long experience of coal mining, the uh, underground water sources uh, quite often uh, aren't working anymore. So during periods of uh, long droughts, there's no uh, water to uh, sustain the, uh, the vegetation. And so this uh, caused further problems in the future. If it uh, dries out so easily, it could be more prone to uh, bushfire and so on. Um, so my uh, question is just along the lines of, um, yeah, sort of what sort of, um, uh, have you got any um, experiences of particular places where that's uh, been a problem and uh, what's being done to address that and uh, is that uh, likely to be a big uh, problem going into the future with more places like that? Uh, many years ago from my sins, I was actually involved with one of the court cases in um, you know, coal mine based in extension and uh, the depression in the groundwater there would be at least 500 years or more and it still hadn't recovered even after 500 years, was based on the modelling. 
right? And so that's a permanent impact. Now, that's been one of the, the, the criteria that saw the bylong mine, proposed bylong mine, rejected last week. So I think some, some of these issues um, we don't have really good evidence for in terms of um, successful outcomes on rehab. And, and so because we haven't rehabbed many large coal mines, it's, it's exceedingly few large coal mines that we've completely closed and walked away from. And then we could come back 10, 20 years later and actually ask these questions and have continually monitored for that 10 or 20 years. And so we have to go on some of the, the, the examples that we know of either during operation or some of the examples of progressive rehabilitation. And, and sure, we know there's issues. You talk to the operators or the, you know, um, the environmental people on site, we know there's sometimes all of these problems crop up. So, um, but we don't synthesize it into this complete picture. And, th and that's, a, um, uh, I think, a failure of our process. So I think we need to be doing a lot more on that. We need to be a lot more public. Um, right? But we also need to work out, well, yeah, some of these things, we have changed that landscape. And so how do we factor in risk assessments that, um, for the future, which take account of climate change, combining with a lack of groundwater, um, leading to a much drier vegetation state that increases bushfire risk? Some of these things you can start to think through and you think, oh, that's just being silly, but no, these are real scenarios, you know, and stuff. And so uh, we haven't really done that yet. And I think it's, 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 a, it's a really good question. I don't, I don't think I have a great answer, but there's certainly evidence um, you know, in current operations for, for things like that, but, it, um, but we don't do that yet for, for large-scale rehab. The concept of legacy uh, brings up these ideas of generational timescales and touching on... 10,000 years, 67,500 years. So my question is, given Mark's about the exponential growth uh, in resource extraction, and then Gavin made a point about a disproportionately exponential growth and in legacy issues. This overlays with issues such as climate shifts and other planetary scale shifts, um, sixth grade extinction, um, we're down 40% on pre-industrial ag soil levels. We've got to double food, water. Is this, like, is this the next great illusion uh, for humanity? Um, like, is this feasible in any way, shape and form? Is this feasible? Or are we leaving an intergenerational equity issue of, of I don't know, species scale proportions? I'll give you a second to think about that. In relation to tailing stamps, what we've learned in the last few years is that they're starting to fail. They're, 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 the failure rate has increased. And I suppose the severity of the failures in Brazil has what's really shocked people, the, the loss of life associated with those failures. And then the identification of another 50 potential failure sites of tailing stamps. So if we're talking about inter- and intragenerational equity, We've already got a massive liability where resources have been extracted from one site and then perhaps used, sold in other parts of the world and there's no longer the funds or the know-how to clean up those sites. But now let's multiply it even more and include those extra things that Adam has spoken about. Um, we've always left legacies, you know, and I think we've always left that for the, for the next generation. Um, the generation that made money out of Mount Morgan um, and then went and bought parts of England, like William Mokassi and founded BP in the process. Um, he made his money, but uh, the Queensland government's got hundreds of millions of dollars of liability dealing with Mount Morgan. So, so I think 
humanity's always done that, and, and mining is just one example of that. I think the way we've done agriculture, all sorts of things. I, I, you know, I don't have a good answer, um, except to say that I, I guess I always take an optimistic approach. We, what's the alternative? We just ignore it and just don't do anything about it? Um, no, of course we have to acknowledge the problem, uh, work out how to deal with it, and, uh, and work damn hard. That um, the alternative of an unsustainable planet is not one we want. Yeah, well, you know, uh, glass half full, tailings dam half full. Um, it is, uh, Gavin's right, there's nothing new about human nature in this generation, but there's new technology, there's a rapacious rate, and there's massive burdens and a massive impost. We're both drawing from the future and we're imposing waste on the future. You know, 10,000 years of radioactive waste fueling Fukushima directly from Australian uranium, et cetera, et cetera. That's just that stuff, apart from assets stripping the future. I really, a lot of this, just at the scale and the rapacity, if that's such a word, the rapaciousness of it, is, um, is undermining. Maybe that's what we should be. It's the Australian undermining industry. And we have got, as Charles said before, we have got the ability to do this very differently. And what we are now is a little bit akin to the person who knows that they've got to change and puts the seven-day diet on the fridge and it's all there and it's really well calibrated, but they don't do it. That's our regulatory framework, but the fridge is full of carbs and sugar and that's our mining industry. And we've actually got to turn the rhetoric into the reality. And we are a rich nation. We should lead on this, not just on paper, but in reality because we are a rich nation and a lot of other countries of low governance are poor and don't have the opportunity. We're spending $20 billion a year, bipartisan, without public debate on defence. $20 billion, it's just done like that. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have defence, etc. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying there are decisions that are made at a political level which um, enable things to happen. I think one of the key things in my experience and what I'd like to draw out participants' prerogative is Charles' point of the political capture. This is happening in a politically captured context. We could do so differently and we need to. Okay, I've got 67 seconds left for question and answer. Go for it. Without getting into a generalised political argument, I'm not an expert in mining, I'm a, a filmmaker and academic. When I hear this conversation, I think, well, where does the political will lie to restructure the regulatory processes that you've been speaking about for the last half? Because it certainly doesn't lie with Clive Palmer and his $50 million on the election campaign. It doesn't lie with Scott Morrison, who was elected through a miracle. Um, so where, where, where can we access that will? Um, you need a merits-based judicial review of every mining project. And that is currently being denied to many communities in Australia. You have kind of strange regulatory processes that change for every project that gets approved or doesn't get approved. I mean, there's... Gavin could speak of many examples. Um, ministers intervening. I mean, you need an independent court process that actually assesses projects on their merits so that we don't have politicians dabbling their fingers into every project to, you know, kind of um, to allay, allay their own constituents. That's what you need. And I saw that. I was involved in the Rocky Hill process where that mine was uh, refused, mainly on social impact grounds. 
And that was really cutting edge because there was actually an independent court that assessed it, not a Department of Planning environment that is captured uh, and ministers who can intervene at any time they please or they simply change the law. That's what we need. All right. I'm not going to let the others answer because we only had our six, seven seconds. So I've just got a few minutes to close. So to, to read from, from our report here. To paraphrase Lawrence, mining legacies should not be orphans. Rather, the responsibility for them should be accepted today by industry, government and community instead of leaving negative, or negative legacies or challenges to the future. So what I want to do is give you all about 45 seconds. We'll start with Gavin. It doesn't have to be your best one, but today, what is the thing that you would like to, if, if you could wave your magic wand in terms of mining legacies here in Australia, what would you do? Okay. Uh, I think communities is the answer to your question, and I think communities is where we start from and where we finish. And so I think making sure that communities are in control of, uh, of how we manage and deal with mining legacies. I think that, that's the, the um, start and finish point. I would, uh, the first thing I would do is change the way that political donations happen in this country and separate the mining industry from our political systems, including the revolving door of people from the public sector going to work for mining lobby groups, including former ministers um, in Queensland and, and elsewhere. They would be the first two. My magic wand agrees with her magic wand and also uh, empowered communities, um, a, a, a revised situation so that there is public environmental impact assessment of mine rehabilitation. It's not based on a project that was approved 30 years ago. It's based on the current impacts. And mining companies and mining people who realise that there's massive potential and economic activity and it's in their interests for both social licence and to grow their business by cleaning up. Massive opportunities globally in cleaning up. So miners not see this as a burden or a cost to their bottom line, but a way to ensure social licence and a way to grow their mining sector. Seeing as all of the other ones were taken, I will take um, an independently assessed full cost-benefit analysis of a mining project. So I would like to see all the rehabilitation costs independently assessed prior to a mine being approved because I would like to see if the economics actually stack up on a lot of mining projects. That throughout the life of a mine, the profits end up somewhere else and at the end we get a big minus on the balance sheet that is borne by communities and taxpayers. Wow, four, four good places to start. So I want you to walk away to today not being so overwhelmed. You know, today we've opened the door. We've opened the door to a number of discussions that you can have over a drink afterwards. So you can, you can come and nag them with your question or um, your great idea about what we're going to achieve next. I suppose I just want to close in, in saying Australia does have a lot of good things going for it with the mining industry. And we are an example. And maybe we should, you know, really grab hold of that torch and go, yes, we could be so much better. And unfortunately, then that, the next part of it comes down to us, comes down to the community. Because the current, the way the power currently works in Australia um, and the sort of the lack of desire at a high level in state and federal governments mean that they're not providing the leadership on many issues that perhaps people care about. And mining legacies is just one of those. And so as with every, every other concern, then what it takes is for people in the community to keep pushing those issues up 
we've heard that there's great opportunities for reform. Um, so let's just start with some low-hanging fruit with some of those regulations and then we can tackle some of the bigger drivers which are about the commodity cycle and, and the lack of real costing of environmental and social impact. So thank you all for coming and thanks again to the Sydney Environment Institute for making this all possible and please thank the panellists.